Well, welcome once again to our Against the Odds series, this series that we've been walking through, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, his first letter. Now, I just want to give you a little background if you haven't been with us or you just forgot, just to kind of remind you that Paul and Silas were on a missionary journey. If you go to the book of Acts, they called it missionary journeys. Paul did three. First one he did was Paul and Barnabas, then Paul and Silas. And in the middle of the second one, Paul and Silas find themselves in Thessalonica. They had just been run out of, and literally run out of, Philippi. They were there and they were doing ministry and and some things happened and people came against them. They were arrested. God did some miracles. It's a pretty awesome story. You can look at it in the book of Acts. But they had to leave there because of the persecution and they went to Thessalonica and they were there. It says that Paul preached in the synagogues for three Sabbaths. Now, what we know about that is that's every Saturday. So that means that they were about three weeks before the family that they were staying with and people were turning to Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. And the believers there were being persecuted by that same group that had followed Paul from Philippi. And now this family was arrested. Paul was was staying with this family. They were arrested. Paul and Silas were not there. So finally they get freed and basically... They said, hey, for the safety of everyone, Paul and Silas are going to move on. They're going to go to Berea. But they, they planted these seeds, and in only three weeks, maybe four, this church began to grow. That's why we titled this message Against the Odds. Actually, the first three chapters of this letter were Paul explaining what he had learned about the Thessalonican people after he left. He found out that not only did they survive, but they grew They became a model for other churches in the region of Macedonia. That's pretty amazing because they didn't have somebody to pour into them. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have a pastor. Everything happened out of the seeds that were planted in that short period of time. It was a miracle. And Paul, after a while, had sent Timothy to go check on them, and he found out all these things. He was hearing rumors about them, and he found out, but he had doubt. He didn't know that he didn't think they would survive. He said, surely I wasn't there long enough. Surely we didn't put enough into them. But they did. They survived. And so when Timothy came back, he shared all those good news. And that's when Paul wrote this letter is after after Timothy had returned to share with him everything that was going on. And the first three chapters were all about Paul just kind of commending them and, and sharing with them how proud he was of them and how it was so such a miracle. Then he shifted to answering questions and giving them some warnings. Remember, this was a pagan area, and they served other gods a lot of times. Now, there were some Jews, but they would often serve pagan gods, which would have prostitution as part of worship and all these other things. And last week, we learned that Paul had mentioned that, that we should avoid sexual immorality, that we should avoid that type of living drunkenness and all of that. And said, hey, we need to strive to be holy in the way that we live. And then he goes on to answer a pressing question for them. And that's where we're going to pick up today. Is this pressing question. What happens when believers die before Jesus returns? And how does all of that work? That was the question. Now, if you've been around church for a long time, we know kind of the the death and resurrection and that the promise that Jesus is going to come again. But for them, Paul was preaching, hey, Jesus is coming back for the believers. 
And just like today, we know that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, we're a couple thousand years later, but they were just, you know, a couple decades later. And they were anticipating Jesus coming back any moment, but there was persecution. People were being killed. What happened to those believers if they die before Jesus comes back? We're in chapter 4, verse 13. It says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. This was a real concern for them. Paul didn't have a lot of time to pour into them, so this was a gap in their learning. It was something that they didn't have a full understanding of. They, they couldn't wrap their head around what would happen because in their minds, like they knew that Jesus ascended and he says, and they, they were told like, hey, when Jesus ascended, an angel appeared, and you can look in the book of Acts chapter 1, an angel appeared and said, hey, why are you looking for somebody that's gone? He's not here. He's ascended to the Father. But in the same way you saw him go, he's going to return for his church, for, his, the, for the believers. And some people know that as, as like the rapture, the second coming of Christ, all of those terminology get wrapped up in it. But they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. And so we're going to kind of delve into that a little bit. See, Paul's purpose wasn't in writing about this, wasn't so much about doctrine, like getting all of those pieces right. It was more to encourage hope in the hearts of the believers, to let them know that, look, not all, not all is lost, to kind of fill in some of those gaps. This wasn't going to be a big theological thing, but it was going to help fill in those gaps. So the first point today is hope. And I want you to look at the next verse, verse 14. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. That's the crux of it right there. They wanted to know what happened to believers who died before Christ returned. So we're going to deal with that. The first thing, and I think we need to, to touch on this because maybe not everybody understands it, but this is a, a core principle in Christianity. This is one of the foundational things. This is one of the things we cannot do away with. There are a lot of things that we do in church that are part of traditions, part of different stuff, but they're not necessarily non-negotiables. Some could argue whether we do music for worship or not, is that being something that's a non-negotiable? For some people it would be, but there's nothing in Scripture that said, hey, if you don't come together and sing worship songs with a band, that you're not serving God. That's, that's not in Scripture. That's a negotiable. You could debate worship style, all that kind of stuff. But this is a non-negotiable. This is something that's foundational for, for believers. And that's kind of a subletter A, the resurrection of Jesus. This is our hope as believers that just as Jesus died and rose again, we too will rise again. Not only us, but all who have gone before us. This is such a core principle. This life is not all that there is. And that's where this hope comes in. And for us as followers of Jesus, we've read in other books and books like Ephesians, a lot of Paul's writing, Peter's writings, all talk about the inheritance that we will have with Jesus, that we will be co-heirs with Christ, that we're adopted children into the family of God, that we're not just going to be slaves in heaven, but that we're to inherit heaven our inheritance, that we're to be a part of this eternal kingdom. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. 
That's the exciting part. This is, we're free of pain and sin and all that stuff we prayed for earlier. Satan will be defeated. Do I have a context for what that'll be like? Absolutely not. We don't know anything like that. We can speculate, we can wonder, we can dream, but I don't have a a context of what that's going to look like, what streets of gold look like, what all of those things, the imagery that we get. But I do know this. God has been very faithful to me, and I trust Him in that. And if He says it's better than I can ever imagine, I'm going to trust that it's better than I can imagine. And I can imagine some pretty cool things. So I don't know what it'll look like. Maybe there'll be mountain bikes. I'd love it if there were mountain bikes and motorcycles. But throw in whatever you want. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I trust Him in that. So if you go back a few months ago, we were in 1 Corinthians. I want to go back to chapter 15 for a little bit because it talks about this. Look, if there was no resurrection, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then everything we have is lost. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 through 20. I know this is a rather lengthy passage and we've got quite a bit of scripture today, so I just want you to keep that in mind. But 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20 says this, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. That's the key to this. This is what we have to keep in mind. This is why we should keep this life in perspective. This life is going to have pain. It's going to have sorrow. You're going to go through periods where it feels like, man, everything's falling apart. God blesses us in this life. I've done far more in this life than I ever thought possible. But yet there's a lot of pain. There's hurt. There's stress. This life is difficult. This life is not all that there is. That's why we look forward to eternity. So if the dead... If I were to die today, and my hope was only for this life, then I would be lost. That's what Paul's saying. Look, because Jesus rose from the grave, and He's the firstborn of, of creation, He's the firstborn from death, then we too who put our faith in Him will be raised with Him. That's the promise. That's what we know as the blessed hope. That's why I titled that little... Subpoint, hope. Our hope is found in that. So I want to talk about the resurrection of the dead for a minute because this seems to be where their anxiety lies. Do you know that you had the Pharisees and Sadducees? If you go all the way back to the Jewish structure, if you go back to the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk about Jesus' life, you see both the Sadducees 
and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about the law, man, getting all of the details of the law right. Paul, the guy that wrote this, was a very zealous Pharisee. He was all about the law. Actually, he persecuted the church before he encountered Jesus on the road. After Jesus had died, by the way, his resurrected self, Paul met. That's what changed his life. But the Sadducees were different. They did not believe that there was a physical resurrection. They believed that it was only spiritual, that there was no physical resurrection. They had a hard time with the resurrection of Jesus because they did not believe that physical bodies would rise. So here's where the anxiety lies. Now look, this is verses 15 through 18 of our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15 through 18. It says this, We tell you this directly from the Lord, which means they got this directly from Jesus. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Again, the fear that came back to Paul through Timothy was that the Thessalonians were afraid or were concerned that those that died in Christ would be lost. That there was no resurrection from the dead. And, and so Paul was correcting that. He was saying, hey, look, be encouraged. Jesus rose from the dead, so too will we. And we got this directly from him. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes again, the dead will be the first to rise to meet him in the air. And then we too will be transformed and we'll meet him as well. And look, a lot of people's bodies will not be in any kind of shape to raise from the dead because we'll get new bodies. It will be a physical body, but it will be a new body. That's what's going to be raised, is this new physical body. And those of us that remain will get a new body as well, one that cannot die. I'm sure this is very confusing. I'm sure it was very confusing for those that grew up pagan. Man, if you go back to some of the Greek religions of that time, they believed that the, the, the spirit and the body were two separate things. Like the spirit was this part that communed with God, but the body was this failing thing that could do whatever it wanted. So if you sinned in your body, like sexual sins, that's why they had temple prostitutes and all that stuff, that that didn't affect your spirit because they were separate. Very confused thinking. Very difficult for them to wrap their heads around all of this. Why would there be a physical body? And so they, they really struggled with it. And Paul was just wanting them to have hope. This idea of resurrection was something new to them, that they could come out of the grave, that they would be given this new body. They did not know what to expect. So I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul gives further detail. Look at verses 51 through 55. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. 
for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die, and our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? These bodies are broken. These bodies will fail. I'm 51 years old. I don't hear as well as I used to. Now, I'm in pretty good shape. I actually would argue in some ways I'm in better shape than I was in my, my 20s. But yet there are still things my, my joints hurt a little bit more than they used to. If I, I have a compressed disc in my back, if, if I stand in the wrong position for too long... Some people wonder why I move around so much. If I stand still too long, man, it hurts. This body is failing me. Some of you that are dealing with diabetes and cancer and all this stuff, our bodies fail us. They have an expiration date. This body does. But this resurrected body, this transformed body, has no expiration date. It won't have those aching pains. It won't have any of that. They'll never die. That is the promise. That is the hope. That's the joy. And that's what Paul wanted to convey to them, to give them hope, to encourage them that there's so much more. Remember, he only had three or four weeks. I'm sure this wasn't on the top agenda to get into their head. He wanted them just to know who Jesus is. He wanted them to be in relationship with God and he could fill out the details later, which is what he's doing. So the next question is, when is all this going to happen? Or when? That's the million dollar question, right? People have been trying to figure out when Jesus is going to return for more than 2,000 years. You know, Scripture, I didn't even put it in here. Scripture tells us, by the way, that not even Jesus knows the day nor the hour. They should have put that scripture in, but not even Jesus says, not even the Son of Man knows the day nor the hour. Jesus said that himself. Only the Father knows. Jesus ascended into heaven, and people have been looking for that. Look, I mentioned Acts chapter 1. Let's look at it for a second. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is right after Jesus told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out on them yet. And if you don't understand that, we can have that conversation later. But Acts 1, 9 through 11, it says, After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven, but someday... He will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. That's that second coming. That's what they were, that was the hope. The early church lived with that expectation, and we should as well. I think it's been so long, it's been more than 2,000 years, and I think we lose a little bit of that expectation. I know I have. I don't wake up every day going, today could be the day, although today could be. That's the part that we have to understand. I know this is difficult because it's been so long. And it was difficult even for the early church. Look at Peter, not just Paul. Look at Peter in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. Look at this. It says, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. 
The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some of you think. No, He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Did you get that? Everything will deserve judgment. Everything will be destroyed on that day, but it'll happen like a blink of an eye. But here's the thing. God isn't being slow about that. A day is like a thousand years, or a thousand years is like a day to him. We talked about this in the series that we just finished a few weeks ago. So this is, you've, you've probably heard about this, but if you, if you weren't here, did you catch why he's being slow? He's being patient because he doesn't want anyone to miss out. He doesn't want anyone to miss the promise of eternity, to have a relationship with him. So he's patient. He wants as many of us as possible to be with him. He knows not everyone will choose him. That's a, that's a reality we all have to live with. There'll be family members and friends that will refuse. That's what makes our living out our relationship with him so important because we want as many people that, as possible to know him. See, this leads to the next question of when. Well, Peter touches on this too. He says he will come like a thief in the night. We don't know when. We don't know when. First Thessalonians, and we're going to keep going in Thessalonians, 1 through 3 says this, Now concerning how and when all of this will happen. Dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and everything is secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. This image of Jesus returning like a thief is echoed not only in uh, Paul's writing, it's echoed in Peter's writing, it's even echoed by Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus talked about his return. John talked about it in Revelation. All of the New Testament writers in some way or another talked about how Jesus would come back like a thief. Look at Matthew 24, 37 through 44 with me for a second. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. It says, When the Son of Man returns, and Son of Man is often referred to for Jesus, the Messiah, when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. Short answer is we don't know it could be at any moment. The key to all this is to live daily for Him, to live in relationship with Him, to be ready. To strive to be a little more like Him every day. That's what's important. 
not being perfect, but moving to be a little bit more like Jesus, to live out on that mission. Remember, our purpose is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our mission is to share that love and to share it with as many people as possible to draw them towards Christ. Because we never know when that day will be. Look at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 5. It says, But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. And you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, because we're ready. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as a helmet the confidence of our salvation. Now, here's the thing. God does not desire for anyone to perish, so he is being patient. But there will be a time when he comes. We're to be clear-headed. We're to be sober-minded. What that means is we need to be constantly ready for his return to be in right relationship with Him, to be focused on Him and be about His work. That's the point. The hope is we're all going to be raised, we're all going to go with Him, but we have to be ready. And there are, Jesus did a lot of parables around being ready. So there's a lot of teaching that He did, but He was trying to get everybody ready for what was coming. So here's the final thing, encouragement. Encouragement. Remember, we had hope as the first thing, and then win. Now encouragement. That was the point of this letter, by the way, and the point of everything that, that Paul was sharing was to encourage them. Look at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 5. It says, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out His anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when He returns, we can live with Him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Here's the part where we need to celebrate. Whether the believer has died already or whether we are still alive, eventually we're all going to be together with Jesus when he returns again. We just don't know when that's going to be, but that's the encouragement. That's what we celebrate. No matter what happens in this life, eventually we're going to be with Jesus in a body that will never die, inheriting a world that's beyond our understanding. That's what we celebrate. That's the encouragement we need to hold on to. We know that God's being patient. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. And as long as there is breath in our bodies, we need to be building each other up, encouraging one another, and looking for the return of Jesus. That's what the church should be about, encouraging people, loving on people, drawing them towards Christ, not condemning and tearing people down. There's enough things in this life that tear us down and tear us apart. Life is too short. Jesus is going to come, and we need to be ready and waiting and in right relationship with Him. We no longer live under condemnation. We are no longer lost and broken because of Jesus, because of our faith in Him, because of what He's done for us. We have been found, redeemed, and healed of the sin that was destroying us like cancer from the inside. So as we wrap up today, I want to share with you again, our hope is in the resurrection. Hope is in Jesus. 
we will be transformed one day. This body is going to be made new. That's awesome. And we should find encouragement in those words and encourage one another. So the question is this. Is your hope in Jesus? Do you trust in Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? We are to put our faith in Him, to believe in Him, to trust Him. That's where our salvation is found. When we do, the resurrection is our hope. The resurrection is our future. That's what we should celebrate. That's what we're hoping that all of our friends and family can join in with us. We want to bring as many people as possible. That's our mission. So I want to pray over you today, and I hope this has been encouraging. I hope it gives you better understanding. If you have questions, we can talk about this later. We can schedule a time and sit down and talk or over the phone, Zoom, whatever. I don't care. But be assured that if you have a relationship with Jesus, your future is secure, your resurrection will happen, and one day we're going to meet Jesus with new bodies in a celebration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We don't understand all of this stuff, but we trust you. Lord, I pray for those that are on the fence about this, that are on the fence about their relationship, that, Lord, you would help them to understand that you love them, that you want to free them of their sins, and that you long for them to be a part of your family. Lord, I pray that you'd break down walls and barriers that hold us back. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us and fill our hearts with joy today at the future that we have in you. Thank you so much for what you did for us on the cross. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your family, for adopting us as your children. Oh, we love you. Go before us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. We love you, and we'll see you next time.